0: Grab your bulletin uh, real quick one more time. And I want you to notice a few things that are in your bulletin. If you'll notice on the far left-hand side, top far left-hand side, we, we list an order of service. It's there every single week. I'm sure some of you, that's the first thing you look at when you open your bulletin. Okay, what are we singing today? What's that guy preaching on today? What's he going to talk about? I'm going to stick around for preaching or not. I don't know. We'll see. But we list over there. And then below that, we, we've got our uh, maybe something about the evening service. Of course, today being that there is no evening service. Uh, and then we've got uh, some records from last week, just the offering that was collected, how many folks were in Sunday school. We list some information for ushers, deacons of the week, and so on. And then, of course, we welcome our visitors. And, and then in the center section, you all know this already. The center section is for announcements. If you want to know, I always tell you, look right there in the middle. That's for announcements. That's what we do. And then we've got our prayer list at the bottom. That's, it's every week. And then on the far right-hand side of your bulletin is the what? The worship registration. There you go. I say it every single week. You all know this. So every week, for the most part, what we do is we get here. Danny's going to be playing a little bit. Randy will come up at 10 o'clock. and Welcome to Elm Grove, if you would. Take your hymnal and turn to whatever number it is. Or Danny's going to lead us, whatever it may be. We sing a song. And we sing another song, then I come up and stand in front of you and I say hello. I call the children down, we dismiss them. They usually go out that door unless it's pouring, and then they'll go out there, which is kind of, you know, it freaks them out a little bit to have to go a different way. You know, they're like all of us. So they'll go over there, and then we'll stand and shake hands and greet one another and welcome someone to Elm Grove. I say the same thing every week. Then, after that song is over, the next song plays, we collect our offering. And then Danny plays something, somebody sing a special, whatever it may be, and then I come up to preach. We do the same thing pretty well every week, don't we? Now this morning, I'll be honest with you, I threatened to preach from the baptistry. I, I was going to just do it just to kind of throw some of you off and think, what in the world is he? Is that legal? Can he do that? Is that allowed? You know, some of the stuff we do at church is kind of funny. We do it just out of habit. I don't have any particular problem with the way our bulletin is organized, and it doesn't bother me in any way. But you know as well as I do that some of the stuff we do at church is just out of habit, just the way we do it. If we were to come in and sing one song, and then I stand up, some of you wonder, now, what's going on? <sighs> now, listen, I'm not trying to be totally tongue-in-cheek, mostly, I guess, but not totally. Some of us would think, now, something's different. What is happening? If we, if we came in and we sang two songs, and then we went right into the third song, what about the kids? Are they going to be in here the whole time? <laughs> oh. Whew. I'm, not sure I, I'm not sure I can handle that. You may have been sitting next to some, and you just praise God when that second song's over. Hold on down front. Get down. Hurry up. Send them out the door. Right? You know, some of the stuff we do, and when to collect the offering. Listen, I'm telling you, if we collected the offering at the beginning, some of you'd fall out of your pew. You just sit down, and immediately, here comes the plate. Now, wait, now hold on. I came to church this morning. I didn't want to I didn't want to be bothered, and we just stick a plate. Listen, I did some study on, on offering plates this week. I came across one kind that I may threaten to use at some point. It's on a stick. And you just hand it down. Have you ever seen one of those? I don't know if you've seen it. Boy, it's been so long, I'm sure, for some... And you just hold it out. It gets in front of you. What, what do you do? You, if you, at least, if you can pass it, and you just get it on pretty quick, like a hot potato. If it's sitting there in front of you, you got to put something in. We may do that, um, but you know, some of the stuff we do, it just doesn't. It doesn't really uh, anything but maybe functional or organizational. Just because we've done. If we took an offering at the end of the service, you think was he asking for a tip? The Sermon wasn't that good. I ain't put anything in. That's why we do it before the sermon, just so you know. But you know. Some of the stuff that we do just because we do, some, some of us are very passionate about it. I mean, we really are. Don't mess with my bulletin. I know where to look right now. Don't be changing that on me. Don't be doing two songs and then one other song and then dismiss the kid. Don't do one. Don't come at the front. It's a little different for me. And I, I get that. Some of the stuff is kind of funny. Some of it we're passionate about. Do you know, there are some things that we do in church because Jesus told us to do those things. The, the order of our service, Jesus didn't say anything about the order of our service. You've got to do two songs, and then your preacher's going to get up and say a welcome, and dismiss the kids, and then they'll sing another song, and then he'll get up to preach. He didn't say about when to take the offering. Collect it at the beginning of the service, or right in the middle, or maybe do it at the end. He didn't say anything about that. He didn't tell us how many songs to sing. We sing typically three songs before we collect the offering, and we'll do one at the end. We could sing 15 songs. We could sing those songs. Jesus didn't really have anything to say about it. But there are some things that Jesus was very clear on, that believers and local churches must do on a regular basis. He gave us two things in particular that He commanded us to do as outward symbols. One of those is communion. We take communion from time to time. It is a symbol of unity. We are all of one body in Christ and a symbol of remembrance. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So, so what we do in communion is we remember His sacrifice We celebrate our unity as believers in Christ. And we proclaim, Paul says, His death until He comes back. That is something Jesus said, do this. And so we do that as a means of obedience. Not to receive anything in particular from God. We do that to celebrate what He has done and to remember and to show our unity. And He also, Jesus, commanded that we baptize. If you know the Great Commission... He said, go and make disciples of all nations, what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So when I just baptized Harold, we went over it beforehand. I said, Harold, I'm going to say it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's biblical. And I told him, that's your cue to hold your nose. Be ready, all right, because I'm going to take you under right then. But that's why we we do that. Jesus commanded. So it is a display of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's also a display of our identification with all of that. We're going to talk about that this morning. And so I, I, I want to preach to you this morning on the meaning of baptism. Why in the world, though, would you need to do that? Why preach on the meaning of baptism in a Baptist church, for crying out loud? A Southern Baptist church at that? Well, I hope this morning to clear up maybe any confusion. Maybe you're just not sure, what does baptism mean? What's it all about? I don't want to take for granted that everybody in here has a clear understanding of that. This may be the first time you've ever heard a sermon on baptism. Maybe you've read a little about it. Maybe you've attended a Baptist church for a long time, and you say, well, you know, I know we do that, and I see people get baptized, but I'm not sure exactly what that means. I've never really heard it. I also want to highlight its importance. But make a clear distinction that it is important, but, but we'll see not necessary for salvation. I also, I think mostly, I just want to remind us again of what Jesus has done for us. And by celebrating a baptism, we get to see a picture of that. He died for us. He took our sin to the grave. And He was raised again to give us the promise of new life. And I hope along the way... I hope along the way that by preaching on baptism and showing you again, reminding you for many of you the, of the meaning of baptism, that it will give you confidence, it will give you encouragement that we no longer, those who believe in Jesus Christ, we no longer live, and hear this, we no longer live as broken down, condemned, awful sinners. It's not who we are anymore. Is that in our nature? Absolutely. But we no longer live as broken-down, hopeless sinners, but as redeemed new creations of Jesus Christ. I want to remind you of that and let you take some encouragement. Life's going to beat you up. You're going to beat yourself up. Other folks are are going to ignore you and pour pour shame and guilt on you. And Satan's going to try to attack you with all kinds of hopelessness. And if you can be reminded once again of the great work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, that you no longer are a broken-down, hopeless sinner, But by faith in Christ, you have received new life, and you are redeemed, brand new creation. You can walk away different today, with new hope. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Acts is over in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8. We're following up the scripture we saw last week, when we looked at, really, what is our purpose? Why do we exist? And last week we saw from the Scripture this story of Philip baptizing, or actually leading to the Lord. We'll see the baptizing today. Leading to the Lord, a man from Ethiopia who was a high-ranking official. The treasurer probably for the entire country, and in particular the Queen's Court. And we saw last week that Philip displayed that we exist to engage in relationship with God and others that we exist to equip Christ followers for life and for service, and that we exist to evangelize the lost both locally and globally. That's what we see Philip doing. And really, that's just a microcosm of the whole book of Acts. That's what was happening. We're going to follow up today with the scripture that, that we see the result of Philip presenting Jesus to this man along this desert road and what happened. So so let's pick up the story. Uh, We'll look beginning in verse 35. What's happened up until this point is this Ethiopian man has been traveling. The Spirit of God told Philip to go up and join him. Philip obeys. He begins to, to ask the man a series of questions. Do you understand what you're reading? The guy was reading from the Scripture, and he says, No, I have no idea. How can I know unless somebody helps me? And so Philip helps him understand. And he explains about Jesus from all of the Scriptures that this man was looking at. Look at verse 35. So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus beginning from that scripture there in Isaiah. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch, this Ethiopian man, said, look, there's water. I love this scripture. Look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Then he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer. But he went on his way rejoicing. I believe what we see here is, at least in small form, and I'll look at some other scriptures with you this morning, but at least in small form, we get really a microcosm of what is the meaning of obedience, or the meaning of baptism. And we'll see that it is largely about Obedience. In verse 35, the, this man was told by Philip about Jesus from all the Scriptures. Now, those who study the content of New Testament preaching will tell you that essentially it, it contained one very simple message. It came from those who viewed themselves as the proclaimers, the herald of an unaltered message. Which means they had gotten the message from God, Jesus Christ Himself, and they were to proclaim that message without changing it whatsoever. They were just simply to repeat it, but to proclaim it in such a way that thus saith the Lord, or here's what the king has to say. And so that's what we see in the New Testament. The message centered on what has become known as the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus was sent by God to live perfectly, to die in the place of sinners, and to be resurrected to guarantee new life for all who would believe in him. And one day, Jesus will return to consummate his kingdom and to restore creation to the perfection that God made from the very beginning. That's, in essence, the content of the New Testament preaching. And so you can imagine that Philip's message centered on much of that. Verse 35 just tells us he picked up in Isaiah and he began to teach about Jesus from that point in time. And so what he does, most likely, is include all of that. He's going to tell him, it's talking about this promised one of God who would do on our behalf what we could not do, and that is to live perfectly, to satisfy God's demands. That he would die for our sins because God demands death for sin. And only a substitute, a perfect substitute, a pinch hitter, if you will. We've baseball in there somehow. A pinch hitter on our behalf can go to the cross and die, and God will accept it. And so Philip must have preached also about the resurrection, that he didn't stay dead, though he was truly dead, that God raised him again. And we all saw him. And he's alive now in heaven with the Heavenly Father. And he will come to live in and through anyone who believes. That must have been the message. God's work on our behalf and the need to respond in faith. And somewhere along the line, it seems that Philip must have pressed him for a decision. We see in the New Testament that the the apostles, those who preached, and those we have record of, they pressed for a decision. The folks would say, what do we need to do? And they'd say, believe, repent, place your faith in Jesus Christ, and let Him change you. They were always bold in asking for a response. And so, Philip must have said at some point, well, that's the truth, what are you going to do with it? I know we don't like that too much in our churches, but... But there are days and weeks probably where I should just say, here's the truth, folks. What are you going to do with it? And you know that that's really the conclusion of every sermon. Here it is, and what will you do? How will you respond? And so somewhere along the line, Philip preaches the gospel completely to him. He presses for response, and this Ethiopian man gives his life completely through faith to Jesus Christ. He says, I believe. Yes, that's true. And he must have also, Philip must have also included some instruction about baptism. Because immediately after this man's conversion, what does he say? Look, there's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Somewhere in there, Philip must have included some information about baptism. In the New Testament, baptism is always very closely linked. Now, let's, let's make sure we understand this. It's very closely linked with believing. We believe, then we're baptized. In the, in the New Testament, that's what it, it's very closely linked and so the following verses that we'll see really come as no surprise. As, as I read this scripture, I'll just give you a little insight to, to how I try to study it. One of, the, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was when you begin to study the scripture, just make as many observations about it as you can and ask all kinds of questions. And so that's what I tried to do when it came to this particular scripture. So I'm just going to give you the questions that I started to ask as I as I read this scripture. So there are four questions that I kind of thought of and, and figured these, these, these can be something that will guide us this morning. Verse 36, if you look at it, as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? So the first question I had was, why did he want to be baptized? That's the first question. Why did, he want, why did this Ethiopian man want to be baptized? He says, look, there's water. Shouldn't I do this? Isn't this the, the logical conclusion to my belief in Christ that I would go ahead and now follow in what he told me to do? Isn't that what I'm supposed to do next? You almost sense the innocence of the question. He's not saying to Philip, Look, why are you trying to keep me from being baptized, man? There's water. Let's go. That's not not his tone. His tone is, "Hey, here's water. Isn't that the next logical step for me? I want to be obedient to Christ, and so that's what I should do. That's what he's asking. Shouldn't I just go ahead right here? I mean, there's the water. All we got, all we need. We got a believer. We got water. We got somebody to baptize him. Isn't that what we need?" This man really kind of understands the essence of it. And so that's, that's what he's asking. He just simply wanted to be obedient. Why does he want to be baptized? Just to be obedient to Jesus Christ. That's it. Jesus has said be baptized. This guy believes in Jesus. And he said, okay, what prevents me from being baptized? Why shouldn't I? So he wanted to do what Jesus had done and what Jesus had commanded. So he's eager to display his commitment to Christ even in this very public way. Then look at verse 37. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. You may be baptized. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, most of your versions will either have some kind of brackets around this, or they may not include it at all. The version I'm reading from this morning, the Holman Christian Standard, has brackets around it. A little footnote that says, essentially, this was likely added some other time than when it was originally written. There is evidence that back during that day, there was some confession of faith that would be required for baptism along these lines. Yes, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. When I baptized Harold, I asked him, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes, I do. Do you believe He's the only way for salvation? Yes, I do. That's the confession of faith, that yes, I believe the simple message of the gospel. And so it's not out of character that this would be included, but it's likely that this was added later. There are some things like that in the Scripture that may be a scribe thinking, well, that would have obviously been there, let me make sure to write that in so folks understand. Regardless, this is not unbiblical, it just shows the fact that this man wanted to be baptized because he had come to faith in Christ absolutely and wholeheartedly. And so, verse 38... Then he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. The second question I come up with is how was he baptized? We we get why he was baptized, why he wanted to be baptized, because he wanted to be obedient to Christ. Then how was he baptized? How did they do it? I want you to note two things uh, about his baptism first, it was public, it was a public baptism. Now, they didn't gather the congregation together. There was no congregation on this desert road. But he was in front of the people he was traveling with. Now, if you figure that this guy, the Bible tells us, had gone to Jerusalem to worship... There was something about him that was drawn to the things of God. He finally understands the truth. And so he just says, stop the chariot right here. I'm getting baptized. Now, I don't know who all was traveling with him. Certainly some attendants. This guy is a high-ranking official. He's got other people there in the chariot with him. And so the first thing to note, how was he baptized? Well, it was public. He didn't try to hide it. He just said, look, here's some water. Can we do this now? Let's go. I'm ready. Well, you know, you got other people around who may not totally understand what you're doing. I don't care. It's time to be baptized. I want to do this. It was public. The examples in the New Testament of baptism were always public. It wasn't anything they were trying to hide from everybody and hush-hush and and, and not let anybody see it. There was certainly a price to pay for identifying with Jesus Christ in that way. Many of the folks, particularly those who were Jews, lost everything by identifying with Christ they had come to Jerusalem for the Passover leaving behind all their friends and family to travel for this particular pilgrimage and then the apostles and on the day of Pentecost begin to preach and 3000 of them Acts chapter 2 tells us came to know the Lord on that day going back to their same old lives would have been impossible because much of their lives depended upon their adherence to Judaism not to Jesus Christ and so as they are baptized and identifying with Christ there was a price to pay but they were willing to do it publicly I think part of the reason why the the argument for public baptism is so strong is because Jesus himself died publicly he hung on a cross where anybody and everybody could see him and hurl insults at him and so part of my argument when I talk with folks is to say well look if Jesus was was crucified publicly and we are to identify with him it makes sense that we would identify with him publicly. And I'll be honest with you. I have talked to and, and tried to help folks who say, I'm a little bit scared of that. I, res- I respect that. I understand. I, I'm not going to uh, get on you too much about that. But my, my response to that, in truth, is that if you are unwilling, and I would say this to anybody, not to anybody in particular, if you're unwilling to identify here, before your brothers and sisters in Christ we're unwilling to identify with Jesus here, I doubt very seriously that out there you're going to be willing to do it. Now, I'm not trying to be insensitive in any way, but I think that's the truth. If we as a church family cannot celebrate and support and, and help those who identify with Christ publicly, then we're just saying you're on your own. <laughs> Good luck. No, we're not going to do that. And so I encourage folks, public baptism is, I believe, very biblical. Jesus was crucified that way, and so we identify with Him that way. So the first thing to note is that it was public. The second thing to note is that as far as we can tell, this Ethiopian's baptism was by immersion. That means going under the water. The mode of baptism, you see that word, he baptized him. That word in the Greek is baptizo, which in every New Testament instance carries the meaning of to dip or plunge under the water. Jesus himself was baptized by immersion by John the Baptist and would later command it, of course, using the same word in Matthew chapter 28. Now, some would say, why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? You know, he didn't sin. He never committed. Was he repenting of something? Did he need to come to faith in himself? And you know, I mean, how does that work? Why would Jesus need to be baptized? Well, what Jesus shows us is his identification and solidarity with our condition as sinful human beings. He says, I am taking that on myself, and let me show you what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to get right down here in the water, he says, and I will identify with all you sinners and look what I'll do. I will die for it and I'll be raised again. And what does he do a few years later? He hangs publicly on a cross, identifying with the sin and shame of sinners, taking it upon himself, the Bible says, all of our sin, all of our shame. He is later buried, taking it to the grave. He he is raised again, leaving all of that sin there totally paid for by his death, raised again now to show us guarantee of new life. And so Jesus is baptized not because He had anything to repent of. He never committed a sin. Not because He needed to to come to faith in Himself as the Son of God. He already knew that. But simply to identify with sinners and to be our representative before God, He would say, here I am, let me show you what I'm doing about your sin. That ought to encourage you. When you read about the baptism of Jesus, it's not, well, I guess He gives a hoop to jump through for Him. No, 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 it's far more than that. It's a word of great encouragement to us that Jesus has taken our place before God. He took the full measure of God's wrath for us. We deserve punishment forever in hell. And Jesus said, I'll take that upon myself so that you can receive grace and be forgiven and given new life in a clean slate. And his baptism just simply shows a preview of what he would do. In Romans chapter 6, Paul draws a very sharp connection between how baptism is administered by immersion, and what it displays. It's, it's symbolism. This symbolism of immersion and burial is obviously very striking. And so we identify with Jesus. It displayed that our old life, our old sinful life is gone. It's been drowned away, so to speak. And we've been given new life. That we're no longer spiritually dead, but we have been raised to brand new life with Christ. And so we see that the New Testament procedure for baptism was immersion. The early church that we know, baptized by immersion. So is that, based upon example, and based upon meaning that it shows the burial of Christ and His resurrection, is that authoritative? I will say this. I believe, and I will tell you this again here in just a minute, the most important thing to consider in baptism is not the mode of baptism. Should we immerse or should we not immerse? That's not the most important thing. Now, that may sound like heresy in a Baptist church. I've been a Southern Baptist my entire life. But I don't mean heresy by it. What I mean is the most important thing is, is that person a believer in Christ? Then from there, we'll move forward. Because we have churches, and we have people who will be baptized. I was baptized the right way. By immersion. You just told me. I did it right. And they no more believe in Jesus Christ than the person who claims not to believe in Jesus Christ. The most important thing is not the mode, how we're baptized. It is important, yes. And I believe that most biblical baptism is by full immersion. I'll, I'll tell you that. But I believe that what is more important, and far more important is the fact that, that this Ethiopian was a believer in Christ. Not that he was baptized by immersion. That didn't affect his salvation. And so I will say this. Take these fellows, I'll pick on you for a second. Let's say we're traveling down the road, just like these guys. And we're talking about the Lord. And let's say you guys did not know Jesus before. And you said, today, I believe. Can I be baptized? And we look around, we're in a desert. And we got a cup full of water for both of you. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to splash it on you as best I can. We're going to get you as wet as we possibly can. Is that maybe the most biblical way? No. But let me tell you what's more important is that you have faith in Christ. And so, maybe it sounds like heresy. I don't mean it to. Maybe it sounds like, well, I guess I don't have to do that now. That's not the point. But the point is, he was baptized publicly, baptized by immersion, but only because he was a believer in Christ. Baptism, of course, according to the Scripture, is very, very important. And if it's so important, it brings me to my third question that I ask you about this. If baptism is so important, what did his baptism accomplish? This is a big deal. He, he wanted to be baptized. And Philip immediately takes him down, dunks him under the water. There was something important about it. If it's so important, what did it accomplish for him? Now, there are different views on this. All claiming spiritual or, or biblical backup. There is the view that baptism is what would be called a means of saving grace, that it in fact is part of your salvation, that without it you cannot truly be saved. That's called baptismal regeneration, that you are brought to new life through your baptism. It is in one sense sacramental. That means it is the means by which sins are forgiven. Now, many who would hold to this particular view would say, well, that's what God uses baptism for, is to effect your salvation. They would look at Romans chapter 6 and see Paul saying, we are baptized from death into life, and would say, well, there you go. Some would say, according to this, that because we enter life with original sin, and we're not sure where babies go when they die, we better baptize all the babies. Now, I have come to the conclusion, based upon Scripture and certainly the insight of many other people, that I want to give you some hope today. I believe when an infant, whether before or after birth, dies, I believe immediately goes into the presence of Jesus Christ. I have no doubt in my mind. I believe based upon Scripture. I believe based upon the insight that I have gathered from those who have studied it. I am not an expert on that. But I do believe that. I don't believe there's any in-between. If they go to some place, maybe they're unconscious, and so, infant baptism to wash away original sin, I believe, is unnecessary. But those who say, well, I'm not really sure, so just in case, we'll baptize them so that it will affect their entrance into heaven. Some would say baptism is essential to salvation. I use scriptures like Mark chapter 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But then the second part of that verse says, whoever does not believe will be condemned. Doesn't say anything about Baptism. John chapter 3, Jesus says, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The idea there that Jesus maybe is saying you must be baptized in order to enter the kingdom of God. But what he presents seems to be the idea of purification rather than baptism. Because he will go on to say in that same chapter, John chapter 3, verse 16, Whosoever believes... 1 Peter chapter 3, baptism, here's what Peter says, which corresponds to this, and he's talking about God saving Noah's family in the flood, now saves you. And in parentheses, Peter says, not the removal of the filth of flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. So he is not talking about that baptism in of, in, in itself saves us, but that it is a pledge of confidence toward God, a step of obedience. In Acts chapter 11, There is uh, the idea that a whole household was baptized. Well, would that not include those who were infants? We don't know. We don't know if there were any infants. But it it points to us uh, that there is no positive evidence, at least, of, of any kind of baptism other than for those who were already believers. Now, there is a close connection. I'll tell you this, a very close connection between repentance and baptism. But it is not an inseparable or absolute connection. They are two separate acts. This idea that baptism affects our salvation also contradicts the idea of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Baptism is something that we do, and salvation is certainly something that God does. So baptism then is not the means by which we are saved, which goes against what the apostles taught, what Jesus taught, uh, on baptism and on salvation. Now there's a second position that's a little bit different. That baptism is a sign and a seal of the covenant of God. Now, if you have ever read the Old Testament, you probably got to points about circumcision, and you thought, that's just weird. Oh, what are they talking about? And he said circumcision like 15 times in a paragraph, and I just, what is he talking about? Abraham was given this sign that God's promises would one day come true, that they were to be obedient to God, and so the circumcision of all the firstborn, not the firstborn, all the Jewish males, rather, was to happen within the first week or so, the eighth day of life. And that would be a sign of God's promises, much like the rainbow to Noah. Here's a sign of God's promises, that He's going to be faithful. And here's a sign to you that you are God's people, set apart for His work, so circumcise your children. That was the reason that they did it. And so many would say that in today's world, in the New Testament times, that baptism is the same thing as Old Testament circumcision. That it's a sign that God will always be faithful. It's a sign that we're a part of His family and so on. But what the New Testament argues, Paul in particular, is that it's not physical circumcision or some physical act that we do, but it's circumcision, they say, of the heart. It's the cutting away of all the old stuff and the replacing of that with all the new stuff of Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is about. That's the true sign of a covenant, is what God has done on the inside of you. Romans, and and Romans Paul tells us that it's not just out with circumcision, but the whole Jewish system that's out, that's been replaced and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And so if anything has replaced this idea of Old Testament circumcision, it's not baptism, some external rite that we do, or ritual, but it's internal circumcision and transformation. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament really do talk about that. The third position, the one that, that we will hold here at Elm Grove, and we do, is that baptism is a symbol of salvation. If, if you have ever seen a press conference for an athlete who has maybe just uh, just gotten with a new team, what you'll notice is they'll, they'll come very sharply dressed, of course, lots of money that we can't even fathom, some of you maybe, and we'll pass the offering plate in a minute, but <clears throat> you're holding out. <laughs> But what they'll do is they'll, they'll be there and they'll put on the new jersey of, of, of the jersey of their new team. Uh, they'll shake the hand of the, the manager, the general manager, the coach, whomever. And they'll talk about their commitment to the team. They'll talk about, this is, this is where I want to be. These are my guys. This is where I've always wanted to be. Whatever they say, you know how that goes. And I, and I think in some way, though the analogy, like all analogies, runs out at some point, I believe in some way that gives us an idea of what baptism is is about it's identifying with jesus christ we show this solidarity with him and his death burial and resurrection it's identifying with our new teammates if you will our brothers and sisters in christ to say these are my people this is who i'm with and i will identify with this symbol this is who i am this is what i'm about it's an outward symbol it's a public testimony I believe that Scripture makes very clear there is no conveyance of some certain spiritual blessing that comes with baptism. There's nothing magical about the water. Harold and I prayed right before we we went for baptism. And I just mentioned in my prayer, Lord, we know there's nothing magical about this, but may it be a special moment. May it be something that is a great step of obedience and confidence. But there's nothing magical about the water. I've done a lot of baptisms. Nothing's happened to me so far. I haven't come up and floated around afterward or anything. You know, it'd be nice. I haven't done it. Jesus commanded baptism, and so we do it as a step of obedience rather than some way to effect our salvation. So baptism is a symbol of salvation. It always follows belief in Jesus. So it's believer's Baptism, not just adult baptism. Certainly, there there are children, young people, who can come to a full understanding of, of their sin and their need for Jesus Christ and confess that faith in Him. And certainly, I'm not opposed in any way to baptizing young people. I will tell you that I always make sure they understand those concepts. I talk with them individually. And I have told certain children, I'm sorry, I don't believe you understand that. I've told their parents, not because I'm the gatekeeper, not by any means, but I do not want to baptize somebody, go back to it, who is not clear on faith in Jesus Christ, who does not understand the simple message of the gospel. I won't do it. Because I don't want that external thing to be what they count on for their salvation. I want it to be Jesus Christ. So I hope you understand where I'm coming from. Every time in the New Testament that we see baptism, it is following belief. John calls for repentance and then baptism. Peter called for repentance and then baptism. Lots of other scriptures. And so we understand that faith is possible without baptism. You may be a person who says, I've never been baptized by a merchant. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? That's not what I'm saying at all. Not in any way. Faith is possible. Salvation is possible without baptism. But it does in the New Testament. Tie very closely together the fact that those who believe followed in baptism. So it's a step of obedience. It's also a picture of the gospel. It shows us the death, burial, and resurrection. It's a display on the outside of what's happened on the inside. Which leads me to the fourth question. The final question for those wondering who didn't turn over your bulletin to follow along and see that there are only four. You can breathe now. The fourth question why was he allowed to be baptized? really just a summary of the others. Philip doesn't hesitate. Doesn't take him through a 12-step process to understand all the nuances of Christian faith. He doesn't do that. He doesn't make him memorize the Old Testament. Boy, that'd be something, wouldn't it? Get back with me in four years when you've memorized Leviticus. Good luck. He doesn't make him do any of that stuff. It just simply says they go down into the water and he baptized him. Philip simply baptized the Ethiopian because he was a believer in Jesus Christ. Why was he allowed to be baptized? Because he believed in Jesus Christ. That's it. As I told you, it's the question of the person that's most important, not even the mode, not even where, not even when. Is this person a believer? And therefore, Philip said, you're a believer, yes, I'll baptize you, no problem. Now, is there some time, of course, uh, from time to time that's needed to make sure this person understands? I just told you, I do that with, with a lot of people. But once it's clear, this person believes in Jesus Christ, there's no test to take. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And continue to build into their lives. And then verse 39. When they came up out of the water. So it's obvious they went down in and he went under. The Spirit of the Lord carried carried Philip away. I mean, this is there's some interesting stuff going on. He just disappears. It'd be great. It'd be, oh, I love that power. In fact, any any superpower I could have, I think it would just be to transport myself somewhere else. You get in a tight spot, gone. You don't like the person you're talking to, gone. You see me coming down the aisle at Walmart, you don't want to talk to me, you're gone. Yeah, I mean it's. Philip was taken away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but look, he went on his way rejoicing. Why did he rejoice? Not because he got to meet Philip, the evangelist, who just disappeared. He rejoiced because he had believed in Jesus Christ and he was made new. He went on his way rejoicing. The focus was what God had done in him, not on Philip and not the actions of this Ethiopian He went on his way rejoicing. Imagine the impact that it had on those who were traveling with him. They'd seen and heard Philip's preaching. They had seen this Ethiopian come to faith in Christ. They'd seen him request baptism and then be identified with Christ in it, and now he's rejoicing. What an incredible testimony. It leads me all to a very simple, yet I believe, biblical conclusion. (laughs) to what the book of Acts, the entire New Testament, and this particular story tells us about baptism. A biblical conclusion is simply this, that baptism is a public symbol of a personal transformation. You probably already guessed all that. Baptism is a public symbol of a personal transformation. It's public, not hidden, just like our faith in Christ. Not to be hidden. Don't hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Isn't that the song? Baptism is to be public. It's also a symbol. It's not required for salvation. That comes by grace alone, through faith alone. But it is a step of obedience, a symbol of what God has done in our lives and identification with Christ. And it comes after personal transformation as a step of obedience, as a sign of commitment. So today, just like Philip must have in his message to this Ethiopian, I want to ask you for a response. The first question I've got to ask you is, do you believe? Do you believe? The simple message is that God created a perfect world in the beginning, it says. And He made it perfect. God said it was good. It was absolutely perfect and flawless. And yet, mankind, we, sinned against Him. And the stain of sin is now in our nature. We're all born with it and we all see the effects of it because we have all sinned, the Bible says. God's standard of perfection is something we can't achieve on our own and Romans tells us that the wages, the payment for our sin is death. That's what we deserve. Eternal punishment in hell. But God, in His grace, came to us by sending Jesus, His own Son, to live perfectly because we could not. To die in our place, as I said, the ultimate pinch hitter for us. And to be resurrected to show that all who believe in Him will be given new life. Not just here, but for all eternity. The message also includes the fact that He's coming back, we don't even know when. And one day He will judge all of us. And all who believe in Him will receive eternal life. Do you believe that? Maybe for the first time today you say, I've just been coming to church. (laughs) I believe in Elm Grove. I like those people. Do you believe in Jesus? Who He is and what He has done? And if you believe, will you obey? If you believe, the natural step then is to obey. What area of your life needs to be given completely to Jesus? Not just halfway, we've all got those things. Everybody's got compartments in their life. The dark shadows we don't like to talk about. The things we wish we could rein in. The only way for those things to be different is to give them completely to Jesus Christ. In what areas are you unwilling to follow Him? Is it outward? Is it, is it something inward? Is it public, private? What is it? Is it maybe something symbolic like baptism? Maybe for you, you say, Today I need to make the decision. I want to come and follow Jesus in baptism. Just like Harold did. Just like this Ethiopian did. Maybe it's something daily for you. You say, you know, my language or my attitude or the decisions I make or my marriage or parenting or my work, whatever it is, I just haven't surrendered that totally to Jesus. So if you believe, will you obey Him in those areas? And if you believe, let me close with this, will you receive this morning the encouragement of the meaning of baptism? That's what I want you to leave here with, the encouragement that I no longer live, Paul says, but Christ lives in me. That Christ, he says in Philippians, is my life, and death for me is just a gain. <laughs> Christ is my life, death is my gain. And he says in First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, he says, I am a new creation. The old is gone, and all things new have come. The New Testament tells us that I'm, just a, I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm just passing through this temporary home called earth. That you can say with confidence today, I'm a child of God, loved, cherished, and protected forever. In his hands. Be reminded today of the truth, not about baptism and some coercion you might think on my part to get you baptized. <laughs> Be reminded of the truth of Jesus Christ that we've seen in symbolic form that he loves you and he died for you and he has the promise of eternal life for you. The response this morning do you believe? And then if you believe, will you obey? And if you believe, will you receive the encouragement today that Jesus wants for you? Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we pray you'd remind us, even in our closing time, of the great hope in Jesus Christ. And Lord, whether we're a person this morning who comes from a Southern Baptist background or... Methodist background or Catholic background or Pentecostal background or whatever it may be. Lord, I pray that today we just see you. We just come face to face with the truth of your death and resurrection on our behalf. And Lord, may we believe and follow you in obedience. May that be our commitment today. Lord, for the person who, for the very first time, has believed the message of Jesus Christ, I pray for boldness, just like that Ethiopian, to be obedient. Lord, for those who already believe, I pray, Lord, that today would be a day of of simply taking a step to say, Lord, I'll follow you. I believe, so I'll be a disciple. I believe, so I'll follow you. Lord, thank you most of all for the encouragement that we see in the symbol of baptism that you died for us and you were raised again and we can receive new life through you. Lord, as we close with song this morning, turn our hearts towards you and call us, we pray, Lord, to response. In Jesus' name.